that mark. Hey, beautiful. To those who are in our uh, overflow hall or on Zoom, we just had a microphone problem, and now you can hear me for the first time in two minutes. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I uh, hope you're going well, and I hope uh, it, that you're, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, except for that mishap, that you enjoy the rest of the night. Uh, it's great to see some new faces here. And if that's you, you've joined us partway through our sermon series in the Old Testament book of Two Kings. So as I said, let's keep 2 Kings chapter 4 open uh, with the Bible in front of you, but also if you look at your outline, that will also uh, help you. You'll see the kind of the headings of the different parts of 2 Kings 4 that we'll be looking at. When I was uh, about 16 years old, one of the youth leaders at my church died suddenly. Uh, he drowned at the beach, swimming in rough conditions, and his mates, they, they just couldn't save him. Uh, and this was, a, this was a massive thing in our youth group and in our church, uh, a huge tragedy. I remember hearing the news when I was at a birthday party with all my friends from youth group, and suddenly the party atmosphere just changed completely. It went quiet, and everyone cried and hugged and prayed together. Uh, he was uh, the Bible study leader of some of my best mates, and I used to play in the youth band with him. He would play guitar, uh, and ended up playing at his funeral. His funeral had 1,500 people turn up. Uh, he was a young man in his early 20s, and so he was well-loved. But the crazy thing was, and this was kind of like adding sadness on top of sadness, uh, the crazy thing was is that there was a few people, just a handful of people, uh, my youth leader included, who were convinced, who, who were praying and declaring that our friend would rise from the dead. Uh, they mustered up all their faith, as they called it, uh, and they believed that at some point, even at the funeral, which was an open casket funeral, they believed that he would get up out of the coffin and walk out. Uh, at my church, there were problems with the teaching, and sadly, people would sometimes latch on to these kind of ideas and teachings uh, unhelpfully seeking things that God has not promised in his word at this time. Uh, so the funeral happened, and so what happened? Well, we went to the burial site, and, and the body went down, and the dirt went on. No miracle that they were believing for. Now, we don't have time now to go into all the issues with, with that way of thinking, that way of trying to understand the Bible, uh, but you can understand the desperation, can't you? You understand the desperation of those people who believed that so strongly. You can understand the desperation of the family, of his brother, of his parents. I wonder if you felt some of that sadness as we read 2 Kings 4 just then. The deep sadness of death, especially of someone so young, of a son. But now, before we look at that story and some of the other stories in 2 Kings 4, we're going to remember where we're up to in 2 Kings so far. So remember again, Elijah is gone. The prophet Elijah, he's been replaced with Elisha. He's the new prophet, the new man of God, and the leader of all of God's prophets. And remember last week we saw Elisha, he went up against the kings and he rebuked them, especially King Joram, the king of Israel. Um, but now things go from that kind of big picture scene and the political realm to, to really personal circumstances. Now, instead of being on the battlefield or on the king's palace, well, Elijah's in the homes of everyday Israelites. And we see the struggle of people who are the odd ones out. So remember, Elijah, he's a prophet in the north kingdom of Israel, and the king's there, and most of the nation 
they've given up on worshipping Yahweh, or they want to worship him, but they also want to worship Baal, false god. And so 2 Kings shows us these stories take place here. These, these four stories in this chapter that show us uh, God's miracles towards uh, his faithful remnant, to those who still worship him, who still uh, serve the true and living God, who humbly worship him. And so 2 Kings, it draws these four stories together for us. Why? Because these are different miracles of Elijah, but they're done for the average Israelite. This, uh, so we're going to get into the, the long story, which we just read out a second ago. But around that story, there's three shorter stories. Uh, and as we see these stories, we'll see how God is revealing himself. Uh, so we're actually going to do things a little bit out of order tonight. So you've got your outline. It says one, two, three, four stories, but we're going to jump around on the outline tonight. Uh, we're going to look at the three shorter stories first. So have a look at the first short story, the miracle of oil for the widow. And this is in verse 1. What's the situation? Have a look at 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. We didn't read this out before, so have a look there. It says, One of the wives of the sons of the prophets... Uh, do you remember them, the sons of the prophets? We met them recently. The sons of the prophets, they're a band of God's faithful prophets. Elijah was their leader, and now Elisha is their leader. And so one of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, has died. You know that your servant feared the Lord. Now the creditor is coming to take my two children as his slaves. So here's this woman in this desperate situation. She's a widow. Her husband, a faithful man, is dead. And now that she's just got her two sons, and they're not old enough to provide for the family. And they're stuck in debt, and they're at the point of having to sell these two boys as slaves to work for the creditors, to work for the one they owe money to, to work off the debt. So this woman, she's about to hit absolute rock bottom. She's losing it all. The bank is coming. They're going to take it. They're going to take everything. And so desperate, she comes to Elisha, to the man of God. And we can see her faith in this. She comes to the right place. She humbly seeks God's help by coming to God's man, God's prophet. And what does Elisha say? It's actually really beautiful. Have a look at verse 2. He says, what can I do for you? It's a stark contrast, isn't it, to how he spoke to King Joram last week. We have nothing in common, Joram, he said. I don't even want to look at you, Joram. But he only has kindness and compassion for this widow. God has no time for an arrogant king, but for a lowly widow, a faithful woman, all the time in the world. How can I help, he says. What is left in your house? And all she has left is, look at verse 2 again, nothing but a jar of oil. That's it. Who knows if it was a big jar or a small jar, there's just one jar left. And instantly, Elisha has a plan. He knows the course of action. What's his plan? He says to the widow, go around to your neighbors and borrow as many jars and containers as you can. Big, small, it doesn't matter. Just get as many as you can get. Take them home and then pour from your last jar of oil into the containers. How's that going to go? Uh, that's a pretty weird thing to ask her to do, isn't it? But she does what she's told. She, she has trust, faith in the word of God's prophet. And so she takes action. She borrows containers. She starts pouring. And as she starts pouring oil into the containers, 
more and more oil just keeps coming. Jar after jar keeps filling up. It keeps flowing. More and more and more oil. It's a miracle. It's, it's supernatural. There's nothing that we can say to explain it. And they all keep, and they keep filling the containers. Her sons keep bringing her more and more containers. She keeps filling them until finally her sons say, that's the last one. There's none left. And then she looks into the jar and the oil's gone. Miraculously, God provided exactly enough oil for, to fill all the containers. No more, no less. It's an incredible miracle, isn't it? God the Creator shows his power over his creation. And he does it through Elisha, his prophet. But what does this mean for the widow? Have a look at verse 7 now. It says, She went and told the man of God, Elisha, what had happened. And he said, Go and sell the oil and pay your debt, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Do you see how much oil there was? Do you see how much God provided for this widow? God is not stingy here. There was enough oil to pay off all her debt, and then there was leftover for her to live off free from worry. What do we see in this story? We see the power of God through his prophet, but more than that, we see the abundant provision of God, overflowing generosity to this humble woman, this average but faithful Israelite. So that's, that's the first episode, the first of the, third, first of the three shorter stories. And like I said before, we're kind of looking at these stories out of order. So jump across now to the third and fourth stories, the shorter ones that we didn't read out before. And now for the sake of time, we're not going to delve into these stories in a lot of depth uh, because I want to get to the one we read out before. But just quickly, both of these stories are amazing food miracles, uh, which I'm sure is something very close to our hearts, those of us who love food. Uh, and it's never fun, is it, when a meal goes wrong? Uh, you know, we all have those stories where you have a meal with people, you have people over, and then suddenly the food's run out, and, you're like, and everyone's hungry, and it's kind of really awkward. Uh, or there's those times where you're cooking pasta or rice, and it, and it catches on the bottom and burns, and so it ruins the whole batch with this terrible burnt flavor. Uh, thankfully, this kind of thing only happens very, very occasionally on our Wednesday night dinners when we, when we have our Bible study groups. Um, I can only remember a few uh, issues. At uh, one time, half the oven didn't work, uh, and so the meal was an hour late. Uh, sometimes the chips run late, but we still get them, and so it's okay. Uh, very, very rarely we might run, of, run out of food early. Uh, but there was, all, there was one time where someone's, like, a chunk of someone's thumb was grated off into the salad. Uh, um, we didn't serve that salad, or maybe someone fished it out. I, I can't remember exactly. It was actually very not good. She, she wasn't very happy about it. It was very unpleasant. Um, but it's never, it's never fun when a meal goes bad like that, is it? Here we have two meals, episode three and four, that go bad. Two meals that don't go to plan. So jump now to number three, stew for the prophets, uh, from verse 38. What happens? Uh, what's the miracle? Elisha, he sits down to a meal with the sons of the prophets, uh, but someone has accidentally put something poisonous into the stew. Uh, you don't want to be that guy, do you, who does that? Uh, so the meal is ruined, and they're in a famine, and so there's all this food being wasted, and they're hungry. But what does Elijah do? Look at verse 41. Just put some meal, some flour in it, 
it just needs more flour, guys. That's all it needs. And so he grabs a handful of flour, he puts it in, and it's good to go. The poison has been removed, it's gone. The prophets, these humble men, eat their meal and are glad. They don't go hungry. It's, it's another amazing miracle. By God's power, through his prophet, God provides for his people. God is kind and generous, even in the simplest little things of day-to-day life. He's not stingy. Well, then we have story number four. I told you we're racing through some of these. And it's very similar. Come to episode four from verse 42. What's the miracle there? Well, a man, a faithful man, he's generously donated 20 bread rolls uh, and the first fruits of his harvest. And so he brings them to Elisha and these 20 bread rolls. But the problem is there's 100 men, maybe their families as well, who need to eat. So there's nowhere near enough food. And so look at verse 43. In classic Elijah style, Elisha, sorry, I knew I was going to make that mistake, Elisha, classic Elisha style, he says, yeah, just, just start serving it out. It'll be okay. And they're like, what? And he's like, no, no, the Lord has said, there will be enough, and there will be some left over. And so, verse 44, as the Lord promised, they ate and had some left over. God shows again his power through his prophet. God abundantly again provides for his people. It might just be one meal, but that's what God is like. He's not stingy. He supplies his, the, the needs of his people. He gives good things For us to enjoy day by day. Now, I kind of hope that as you've been um, reading these stories, uh, that you've got little memory bells going off in your mind. Memory bells, is that a thing? I'm going to make it a thing. Memory bells. Uh, First, you might be thinking, hang on, didn't, if if we remember our series from 1 Kings last year, didn't Elijah do similar things to kind of this earlier in Kings? And the answer is yes. Elijah, he multiplied uh, oil and flour. For a widow who is in desperate need. And Elisha, he follows in the footsteps of Elijah here. God is with Elisha, is his showing, just as he was with Elijah before. But hopefully you have more memory bells ringing than that. Because don't these miracles, don't some of those miracles sound exactly like some of the miracles that our Lord Jesus did? Think of when Jesus fed the 4,000 or the 5,000 with not enough bread, and then afterwards, they had leftovers. That's what Elisha does here. And what's the point of that? How come Elisha does that, and then Jesus does the same thing? What's to show that Jesus is sent by God, just as Elisha was? But did you notice just how different the scale is? Elisha feeds 100 people with 20 rolls. With less than, than that, five or six rolls, Jesus feeds thousands upon thousands of people this is one of those jesus is greater moments that's the point jesus he's far greater than even the great elisha god shows his power through his prophet elisha yes but he shows his power ultimately overflowingly more powerful through jesus his son see god provides for his people in all sorts of ways but most of all He has sent us his son, the Lord Jesus, the bread of life, the one who gave himself as our spiritual food so that we could believe in him 
and have eternal life. This is what Jesus says in John 6 after doing one of these feeding miracles. He says, I assure you, anyone who believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Praise God for that. And praise God for just the little glimpse we get here in 2 Kings, that Jesus is the one who sustains us for eternal life. But now have a look back at the story that we looked at, that we had read out before. This is episode number two, A Son for the Shunammite. And this is the longest story that we read out before, and it's the most amazing of these stories, actually. Uh, so if you've clocked out at all, that now is the time to clock back in for the last part of the story. Uh, we're going to have a look from verse 8, the son for the Shunammite. So here we have another woman, but this woman, she's really different to the widow that we've just seen. She's not poor and destitute. This woman is prominent and wealthy. And it turns out that as Elisha would travel around the country prophesying and teaching, uh, whenever he came to her town, Shunem, a town in the north, well, it became her habit to show him hospitality, to have him over for a meal and support him on his way. She's generous to Elisha in this uh, and recognizes he's a prophet. She shows him generosity for that reason. So he's another woman of faith, an average Israelite. But then, after a while of doing this, kind of, who knows for how long, she decides to take it a step further. So look at verse 9 with me. Then she said to her husband, I know that the one who often passes by here, Elisha, is a holy man of God. Do you see her opinion of him? Uh, So she says, let's make a small room upstairs and put a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp there for him. Whenever he comes, he can stay here. Don't miss how big this is. What she does for Elisha is amazing. She sets up a sweet Airbnb for him, just for him to come and stay in whenever he's in town. She sets aside a whole room of their house. Maybe they even had to build a room on, I don't know. But they furnish it and they give him a bed and everything he needs to stay when he comes to town. They're generously providing for him. This woman is is just a great example of what we can do to serve God. See, maybe in your life, you're like the widow that we saw in the first story. And you have just what you need, just enough to get by in, in life at the moment. But I suppose that many of us here are like the Shunammite woman. We're like there because we have money in the bank. We have food in our cupboards. We have more than we need. And so we can use our wealth generously to serve God's kingdom and to help other people, and to love others sacrificially, rather than hoard for ourselves. So take the challenge of this woman and her generosity. What can you do to help the fellow believer who's in need? How can you meet their need? How can you show the kind of generosity that costs, like this woman here? And Elisha, he too is struck and amazed by this woman's generosity. And so while he's chilling out in his new room, he's having a bit of a relax, Uh, He's pondering, and he sends his mate Gehazi to go and see the woman. And this is the first time we meet Gehazi. Gehazi is Elisha's uh, attendant, his helper. Uh, He may have been the one who poisons Jew, Uh, but we'll see more about Gehazi in coming weeks. He's an interesting character. Uh, But look at verse 13. Gehazi, he goes to this woman and he says, Look, you've gone to all this trouble for us. What can we do for you? But she says, he responds, Well, look, I live among my own people. I've got everything I need. So Elisha, he's scratching his head. What should we do? And then Gehazi has an idea. 
He says, verse 14, well, she has no son, and her husband, he's old. She might be prominent, and she might be wealthy, but they've never been able to have a son. She doesn't have an heir to to inherit her estate, and so if her husband dies, and he's getting pretty old, well, what will happen to her? Who will get everything that belongs to her husband? Because in those days... It had to pass to a male. And so there's this beautiful moment in verse 15 and on. Elisha says to Gehazi, okay, go and get her and bring her here. And you have to picture it. Elisha, he's, he's there in his new room, and the woman comes and stands in the doorway. In verse 16, Elisha says, at this time next year, you will have a son in your arms. God doesn't promise us all that we will marry. And he doesn't promise us that we will have kids, even if we do marry. But that's up to his wisdom, isn't it? But here, through Elisha, God does promise this woman a son, an answer to her dilemma, security for her future, and the wonderful blessing of a child. And and she's just overwhelmed. And she says, look at verse 16, she can't believe it. No, my Lord, man of God, do not deceive your servant. Don't say that if you don't mean it, Elisha. Don't get my hopes up and then disappoint me. But sure enough, verse 17, this is the power and generosity of God. The woman conceived and gave birth to a son at the same time the following year as Elisha had promised her. And the story could have ended there. We have another incredible miracle. God's power through his prophet is on display. A barren woman has a child, has a son. God's grace and generosity is shown. Her problem is answered. Her future is safe with a son to inherit the estate. This is easy in the Lord's sights, as we saw recently. And so the story could have ended there, but then we get kind of part two of this story. We fast forward a few years and the boy, he's, he's grown up a bit. We don't know if he's 5 or 10 or 15, but the absolute worst happens. Tragedy strikes. The boy, he gets, gets a terrible headache. And as he's in agony for a few hours on his mother's lap, well, then he dies in her arms. And who knows what it was that killed him. You know, I remember at that funeral of that youth leader, the anguish of his parents and family, the bewilderment that their son was taken so early. But this this woman here, in her anguish, what does she do? Well, she doesn't do nothing. She rushes to see Elisha. She puts the boy on Elisha's bed, which, which is kind of interesting. And then she runs as fast as she can. Uh, she jumps on a donkey and goes as fast as she can to see Elisha on Mount Carmel. And as she goes, she keeps repeating this mantra to everyone who asks, everything is okay. She seems to have faith that Elisha can do something. And Elisha, he sees her coming as he's up on the mountain, and his heart is stirred. Is she okay? Is his son okay? Is her son okay? And she gets to him, and then she pours out her heart. Look at verse 28. You can see her pain. She says, did I ask my Lord for a son? Didn't I say, do not deceive me? I didn't ask for a son, Elisha, and now you've given me a dead one. You've given me hope only to dash it to the ground. That's exactly what I didn't want you to do. But Elisha, well, he gets to work. 
And we have this really kind of weird, strange series of events as Elisha does everything he can to try and raise this boy back to life. And it seems that he didn't know what to do, uh, or he didn't know what was going to happen. The Lord has hidden the matter from me, he says. So this is Elisha, the man of God, yes, the, the prophet, but still a human, still a man. It makes me think about uh, those people at uh, that, that youth leader's funeral that I went to. They were so convinced that he would get up out of the coffin. If the great Elijah couldn't, under, couldn't know whether this boy would rise, well, how could any of us know today that anyone would come back from the dead in this life? And so Elisha, what does he do? He tries all these weird and wonderful things, but the real point of the story is in verse 33. Look there. Elisha prayed to the Lord. He throws himself on the mercy of God. And God chooses to show grace. Look at the end of verse 35. After all these these different things that Elisha was kind of copying Elijah, like he, he did this kind of thing back in the day, And then verse 35, the boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. And Elisha gives the boy back to his mother. Her hope and joy restored. She would have been overwhelmed. She bows before Elisha in thankfulness. And off she goes. And again, God shows his power through his prophet. Again, he provides for his humble people, this humble Shunammite woman. But this miracle outshines the rest, doesn't it? Because multiplying bread or oil or fixing a poisonous stew or even giving this woman a son, none of that compares to raising him back from the dead. But this is easy in the Lord's sight. But again, I hope that your memory bells are ringing. I'm owning it. Memory bells, it's a new thing. I hope your memory bells are ringing because Elijah also raised a dead son from back to life. Elijah did it as well. And so Elisha is following in his master's footsteps here. But the the more amazing thing is, of course, that so does Jesus in Luke chapter 7. You see, a few hundred years later in a town on the very same hill where Elisha did this miracle, That's not a coincidence, is it? On the very same hill in the town of Nain, Jesus stops a funeral for the the only son of a widow. And he goes up to the coffin and he puts his hand on it and raises the boy, the man, young man, back to life, just as Elisha did here. But this is another one of those Jesus is greater moments Because Jesus, he didn't try lots of ways to miraculously raise the man to life. And he wasn't unsure what would happen. No, what did Jesus do? He spoke. Look at it on the screen. And Jesus said, young man, I tell you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. If We marvel at Elisha here in 2 Kings 4. We should, we have to, we must marvel all the more at Jesus. Just as Jesus said, I am the bread of life, when he fed those four and five thousand, when John 11 he said, I am the resurrection of the life, resurrection and the life. And he proved it by raising the dead. 
And if we bring it together, this really is the first big thing that we see in 2 Kings 4. No doubt Elisha is great. It's amazing what happens in this chapter. But as godly and faithful as he is, and as powerfully as God works through him, Jesus is greater than Elisha. See, he is our true prophet. He is our man of God, the one that we go to to seek God and his power. More than that, he's our gracious Lord and Savior. The king who laid down his life for us. He's the bread of life, the resurrection and the life who gives us eternal life. So do you, do you know him? Do you love him? Are you amazed by him all the more even than the great Elisha? But the second thing we see in this chapter is, again, God's grace to the humble. You see, this chapter, it has Elisha's miracles in it, but it's not so much about Elisha's miracles. It's actually about the grace of God. The grace of God to the humble and the lowly who turn to him. It's about his overflowing generosity, his abundant provision. It's about the fact that God is not stingy to his people, but he's gracious and gives us everything good for our enjoyment. And then on top of that, the physical blessings that he gives us, on top of that, in his mercy, he forgives us in Jesus. He gives us his spirit. He builds us into a body, the church, our family in Christ. He gives us the joy of knowing him, the promise of life forever with him, with no more death or crying or pain. Don't ever entertain the idea that God is holding out on you. He is not stingy. But the key is, in all these things, he is not giving them to the proud, to the arrogant, to the important ones, the powerful people of our world. No, he gives these things to the humble, to the lowly, to to the poor in spirit, to those who humble themselves before him, to the average but faithful believer, to the nameless, the, the ones that the world doesn't care to know or esteem, Did you notice that in the chapter that all of the characters, none of them have names? We don't get to know any of their names. They're nobodies. They're average Israelites, average people of God, worshipping the one true God. The widow, the Shunammite, the prophets, the man who gave the bread. None of them are named. They're just average Israelites. Yet God knows them. And God sees them and he rejoices in them. And he blesses them. Few as a Christian ever feel unimportant or or overlooked or like the odd one out and your name is never recorded anywhere for anyone to ever read. Take heart because God knows your name. If you are someone who humbly turns to him through Jesus, the man of God, then the God of creation knows you and he cares for you. All week as I've been preparing uh, for tonight, I just keep coming back to 1 Peter chapter 5 and how Peter's words there, he kind of sums it all up for us and he shows us how we should respond. So listen to what Peter says about God's generosity, his grace to the humble. 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, And all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him, because he cares about you. That's a memory verse to learn, isn't it? 
Let's look at it again. God resists the proud. We saw that in King Joram last week, didn't we? But he gives grace to the humble, which we've seen tonight in these humble stories of these Israelites. So, he says, humble yourself before God like they did. Come before him empty-handed. Recognize that he is holy and that we are not. Seek his mercy and his grace and his help. Cast your cares on him, whatever they are. Bring your struggles and prayers to him because he cares for his people. And the beautiful promise is that he will exalt you, that he will lift you up at the proper time. Now, we don't know what the proper time is. It's up to his wisdom. It might be that God does exalt some of us in some ways in this life, and he gives us the kind of things that we see happening in this chapter, the physical blessings that he can and is free to give us in his generosity. But we know that the New Testament shows us we can't expect those things now. They're not guaranteed. We suffer along with our Lord now, waiting for his return. But if we are humble before God, trusting in his Son, we can be sure that he will exalt us at the proper time. At the proper time of the return of his Son. When God's children are revealed, when he exalts us fully and says, well done, good and faithful servant, when he gives us eternal life in his eternal kingdom. Let's pray in response to that. Father, we thank you for your revealed power and generosity to the humble in this chapter. We thank you for giving us these stories to grow our trust in you as we see normal, average uh, followers of you expressing their faith and receiving the good things that you have to give to your people. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and exalt us at the proper time. And in the meantime, please make us people who humble ourselves before you, casting our cares on you, because you are the one who cares for us. Amen.